Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're going to continue a series that we started on episode 157 on the life of Jacob. That previous episode dealt with the context of the Jacob narrative, and in this episode, James Jordan's going to take a small step back and discuss Rebecca and how she is a new Abraham in order to set up the context for what's to come in the Jacob story. Along the way, he's going to discuss how the Bible was written to be heard. He's going to discuss the different falls in the book of Genesis, as well as the theme of seeing in Genesis. And finally, we'll discuss how Rebecca can be seen as a new Abraham. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Today, after a few minutes, we're going to get to the story of Rebecca, which you will find in this text, she is called Rivka. And just for fun, when we read the text, we're going to use the Hebrew names here as we go. Rivka. This name consists of the letters R, B, and K. Just a soft B. The word for bless, which occurs in this passage six times, repeated over and over again, consists of these letters, B-R-K. Now, these are the same letters, and no Hebrew reader, or, or rather no Hebrew hearer, would have missed the connection, that Rebecca is a blessing. It's very common in languages for letters to be reversed like this. You're familiar with it. If you say the word asked, A-S-K-E-D, I asked him to come, asked is a very complicated sound to say. So what do people fall into naturally? They say, I asked him to come. Axed is much easier to say than asked. This happens in every language in the world. It happens all the time in Hebrew. If you conjugate a verb, as soon as you get into the hip-pa-el stem, you're reversing consonants. I mean, there are a lot of words in Hebrew that exist with reverse consonants one way or the other. It's the same word, only it will be spelled with the consonants in a slightly different order. And these words, Barak and Rabak, would have been heard as puns in the Hebrew as it's read out loud. Remember that the Bible was not written to be read silently. It wasn't written to be read alone. It was written to be read out loud. It's not that the Bible existed as an oral tradition for a long time and was finally written down. That's not true but it was written down to be read out loud by somebody who could read. It's an aural book, A-U-R-A-L. Now this translation, which is made by Fox, Everett Fox, is done with this in mind. And this, he has translated the entire Pentateuch, especially when you get into the law in Leviticus and other places, the translation is accurate. Your Bible in Leviticus 1 calls the first sacrifice a burnt offering. It's not a burnt offering, it's an ascension. That's just a mistranslation. As soon as you get into the commentators, they tell you that, but because of the traditions in our translations, it's always wrong. The second chapter of Leviticus calls the sacrifice there a grain offering. It's not a grain offering, it's a gift or a tribute. Since it's a grain, but the word minka, which is what it's called, means that this translation is very accurate, it preserves the word order, it preserves the rhythm, it preserves very well, not perfectly, I think there's one thing he misses, the out loud rhythmic character of the text. It was designed to be heard. 
and there are scholars who are trying very hard to restore that, it's the opposite of what you have with the New International Version, which is a version written to be read very smoothly by silent readers. Very smooth, reads like a novel, and it's the opposite of the Bible, the way the Bible's written. Doesn't mean you can't read it and get the general idea, but if you want to hear it out loud, this is the best text. The King James was done, and before that, even better, the Tyndale Bible was done to be read out loud and preserves a lot of the rhythm and cadences of the Hebrew. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, he saw three men coming. That's the rhythm. The New International Version says, Abraham glanced up and saw three men. Nice, good novel style, but no poetry, nothing out loud about it. This is a very out loud text designed to be heard, brought over into English, which I think is the way it ought to be done. And as we go through this, this is what I'm going to read from, because I'm going to read this out loud so that we hear it and get as much as possible from the actual hearing of the word. Well, when you get this, you read the introduction and see. A German equivalent of this translation was done 80 years ago by men who became very convinced that this was important. And this is an English attempt to do the same thing. And it's really it's just kind of dividing line of how you want to translate. And there's no problem with Bible paraphrases or other kinds of translations. But this is good because it's good for out loud hearing, which is the way the Bible was intended to be done. The Bible is not written in poetry or in prose. You don't have either poetry or prose really anywhere in the Bible. The Bible is written in what is called prosody. It's a kind of prose that has a rhythmic feel to it. And you know the New Testament is done the same way. How's the Gospel of John written? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. So forth. Line on line, flow on flow, repeated words, gradually moving forward, repeating the same words again with a slightly different nuance as it comes up. It's not poetry. It's not the same as ancient world poetry. You can get the Psalms. The Psalms flow over more on the poetic side. Some books like Ecclesiastes maybe flow a little bit more on the prose side. But everything is in this middle area that is called prosody. And this is good. This is good for that reason. Now, we're going to get to it, but I just want to explain to you why you have this. I think this will add a whole lot to our consideration of this narrative, and you'll enjoy it if you're not persuaded yet. Now, as to our lesson today, we're on the fourth page of last week's notes, which has at the top the chiastic structure of Genesis. And we looked at that last time, and if you weren't here, the notes are explanatory the notes will do you we're going to look as we spiral in on Jacob just real quickly at the relationship between the three falls of humanity and the three patriarchs in Genesis because Genesis is written as sort of the first answer to the fall of man and if you remember just from the way God made the world he made the world Within the world, he made a series of lands like the land of Havilah, the land of Eden, and within Eden there is a garden of Eden. Adam sins in the garden, Cain sins in the land, and is driven out of the land, and the sons of God sin in the world and are driven off the world by the flood. Now that's a progression. First of all, we're driven out of the sanctuary for a sanctuary sin. Then we're driven out of the land by a land sin. 
then were driven off the world by the flood in a world sin. The garden sin that Adam commits is taking the forbidden fruit. The land sin that Cain commits is murdering his brother. And the world sin that the Sethites commit is by intermarrying with the Canaanites. The first sin, the sanctuary sin, is primarily against God the Father. Because he is the one that we worship in the sanctuary. It's true we worship Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but when we pray, what do we say? Our Father who art in heaven. Worship is primarily to the Father and also to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit leads us to the Son and the Son points us to the Father. So the sin in the sanctuary is the sin against the Father. The sin in the land where Cain murders Abel is the sin against God the brother or the Son. And the sin of the Sethites is against God the Holy Spirit. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were good looking. This is just right out of Genesis chapter 3. Eve saw the fruit was good to look at. This is exactly the same word here. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were good to look at. And they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit will not strive with man forever. What's the spirit striving to do? He's striving to get the Christians to marry other Christians. But what are the Christians doing here, the sons of God? They like the cute pagan girls better than the ugly Christian girl. Well, it doesn't say that the daughters of God were ugly. It just says that these guys decided that the daughters of men, the Canaanites, were beautiful. That was their choice based on what was in their heart. And you know, it's interesting. Here's just a perfect example of how you would miss this if I hadn't told it to you. Whereas a literal translation would have given it to you. It says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes. A delight to the eyes. Now, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. Now, happily, my margin has out in the margin that they were good. The daughters of men were good. But unless you saw that the word good was there, you wouldn't realize this is exactly the same as the woman saw the tree was good. And you wouldn't necessarily make the parallel. This whole business of seeing in Genesis was really important. What happens in Genesis 1 over and over again? What do we read? God saw that it was good. The woman sees the fruit. The sons of God see the daughters of men. And what did we just show you in the patriarchal narratives? So and so lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, he saw. I mean, how many times do you read something like that? So it's an important theme, a theme in Genesis. It'll be a theme in the Jacob narrative. Well, we've got these three falls. The sanctuary sin of abusing the sacrament, basically. The land sin of social murder, oppression. The world sin of compromise and intermarriage. Well, the Abraham story deals with Abraham as father. And fatherhood is the main issue there. God is father. We don't see a whole lot of brother-brother strife in the Abraham story. In fact, you don't see any of it except that Ishmael is caught laughing at one point and Sarah says, wait a minute, if he's laughing, what about my son laughter? That's it. Brother-brother strife, not there. What do you see in the Abraham story? Abraham goes somewhere and he builds an altar. He goes somewhere else and he builds an altar. He goes somewhere else and he plants a tree and he makes an oasis and he has an altar. Water, trees, altar. Water, trees, altar. Little gardens of Eden. Sanctuary context. Abraham has to trust God in the sanctuary context. What do you have with Jacob? 
You got Cain and Abel all over again. You got Jacob and Esau. His brother, brother all the way. Somebody's fighting with Jacob at every point. Somebody's fighting with him in his womb. His father fights with him for 77 years. And his brother fights with him. Then he goes and Laban fights with him. And it turns out that all this time God the brother has been fighting with him. And he wrestles with God. That's the context. What's the context in the Joseph story? You're out in the world. Judah goes out in the world. And he gets involved with Canaanites and Canaanite women. And his sons marry Canaanite woman. And she converts. But Judah messes it all up. Then right next to the Judah story, remember, there are two sons, twins that are born, and they change places, Perez and Zerah. That's exactly what happens with Joseph. He has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. They change places. Stories are directly parallel. Joseph is out in the world. Sinful woman tries to get him. He refuses. He hearkens to the Spirit. So these three stories, the story of Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, which are the three narrative blocks, carry out and show positively what it means. What did Adam do in the garden? He didn't wait. He didn't wait for God to come. He didn't wait until God told him he could eat of the forbidden fruit. He seized it and was kicked out. He wasn't patient. What does Abraham have to do? Be patient. Patient. Someday you're going to have a kid. Ten years go by. Twenty years go by. Thirty years go by. What's your name? Abram. Father. Mighty father. How many kids do you have? None. I mean, you've heard this before. Then God changes his name to Abraham, which just extends it. Father of many. How many kids do you have? Well, I've got this one by a slave girl. Over and over. And of course, the one time he sees his forbidden fruit is when his wife hands him a forbidden fruit. See, that's just like, like the garden. And if you look at the story where Hagar is driven out and comes to Bear Lahiroi, there's all kinds of garden stuff there. She comes to a spring. God appears to her, asks her questions, makes a promise to her about her son. Very Genesis 3 stuff there as God grants a garden to Hagar and Ishmael. And that's going to be a little bit important because we'll see that that place, Bear Lahiroi, where the angel appeared to Hagar and made the promise to Ishmael, that's where Isaac winds up living. So there's some relationship there. But at any rate, that's just by anticipation. Abram is patience. No, with Cain and Abel, it's wrestling. Cain, God is displeased with him. He's angry. It says he talked to his brother in the field. We're not told what they said. But that's enough for us to know that Abel is the first prophet. Because he has to have said something. He may know he was righteous. And so whatever conversation they had... Abel takes the side of God and gives good advice to Cain who doesn't like it and so who kills him as a result. Well, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with it when you're speaking the truth and they're trying to kill you? How do you deal with that? The whole Jacob narrative is about how you deal with it. It's very practical. How do you deal with it when you're standing for the truth and they want to kill you for it? And you have to be a pretty crafty guy. And there's nothing wrong with being a crafty guy, as long as you don't compromise the truth. You submit to your father. You take advantage of your sinful brother's lack of interest in the covenant. You pray to God. You listen to your mother, since she's godly and your father's in sin. On and on. And you wrestle. But you care for them. When they come after you, you run away. You send gifts to Esau to buy him off. None of these things are wrong. 
their wisdom. Now, this is a message to Israel later on. Hey, you're a whole nation of priests and the nations. The nations aren't necessarily going to want to hear what you have to say. So they're going to try to kill you just like Esau. So how do you live with that? How do you act wisely in that situation? And then there are the Sethites in the world of the Canaanites, the daughters of men. They're cute looking things. They want you. How do you deal with that? Well, Judah shows you how not to deal with it. Joseph shows you how you do deal with it. Well, you may get thrown into prison. Well, still, we won't be looking at the Joseph narrative, at least not in this series of studies, but Joseph's Potiphar's right-hand man. Who's Potiphar? Captain of the bodyguard. If Potiphar is the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard, he's right there in the court. And if Joseph's his right-hand man, Joseph's in the court. Joseph was an important person before he was thrown into prison. Pharaoh probably knew him. Maybe it was an older Pharaoh. He had to give all that up. Well, there's wisdom there. These stories are answers to these three falls. How does a righteous man live in a situation where these temptations, the temptations that humanity fell into the first time, by faith, how do you avoid those temptations? That's what the Jacob story is about, in part, where it fits. And so I want us to think about that, just as an introduction. Now, as we continue to introduce, I have here on the next page the chiastic structure of the Jacob narrative, or as it's sometimes called, this is palistrophe, or chiasm, like almost all narratives in the Bible. It starts a certain place, it goes through something, it comes back to that place, change. God's in the business of changing people. And if you just look very, very interesting how close this follows what we already know of the narrative. Well, we start with Ishmael, Isaac, the false son that Jacob has to deal with. We have a whole section dealing with the Gentiles, G and H, where Isaac goes to Gerar and then has to struggle for wells. Then we have Esau. Esau's getting everything. Jacob's being rejected. Then Jacob leaves the land. And so this going out of the land and coming back into the land is right at the center of the story. God meets him as he leaves. He goes to Laban. He gets some sons. He works for Laban some more. And then he leaves and God meets him again. J prime. As he's going back out. Then he meets Esau again. Half a chapter dealing with Esau. Then we have more trouble with Gentiles as Hamor and Shechem are circumcised, but then they're murdered. Then we move back out of the story. And we'll look at this in more detail. But both the geography of the story, going out of the land, working for Laban, coming back into the land, and at the center of it is the birth of these sons. Right at the center. You have 11 sons who were born by nature, and then you have Joseph who is given last, who is born by a miracle. Joseph is not the youngest son, as we'll see. Joseph and Judah are the same age. That emerges from the chronology. Some of the other sons are actually younger, but Joseph's birth is given last because God has to work a miracle to do it. Now, if you look at the next page, which is the first page I gave you today, Structure of the Abraham Narrative, we're not going to look at that. You can take this home and study it. But at the center of the Abraham Narrative is also the birth of a son. It's Ishmael who is born. Actually, he's born right at the center of Abraham's life. Abraham lived 175 years. Divide 175 by 2. And you get 8. That's 16. You get 88 years. Abraham is 86. That's right in the center of his life. Excuse me. 87 years. 87 and a half. 
Well, we're right in the middle of Abraham's life when this happens. And that's the center of the chiasm. And in fact, all the stuff about God's promises to Hagar and to the Gentiles is at the center of this. Why? Because Abraham's whole life is to be a blessing to the Gentiles. That's why he was called. He wasn't called to be a blessing to the Jews. He and all the other Jews were called to be blessings to the Gentiles. That was their purpose. That's why throughout the Abraham narrative, you constantly see Abraham leading Gentiles in worship. Mamre and Eshcol and all these other guys. He's making covenants with them and leading them in worship. And at the center of the Abraham narrative is that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. But again, it's father and son. All of these stories, the three patriarchal stories, concern fathers and sons. The whole Abraham narrative is about when am I going to have a son? Then God says, you're going to have to give your son to me. Jacob's story is all about how he's going to have a son. Where is he going to have sons? He's got all these sons. The sons start to go bad. The Joseph story continues to be about sons, Joseph's sons, Judah's sons, the sons of Israel, fathers and sons. Now the reason for this is, in terms of the huge overall structure of Bible history, the father is in main focus in Genesis 1 through 11. We begin to get the father and the son in the patriarchs. And then the Son comes into focus as enthroned at Mount Sinai. And that continues through the kingdom period. And then with the remnant, the call of the prophets, the Spirit begins to come into focus. After the exile, the Spirit comes into big focus. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Jesus says, I'm leaving. You don't need me anymore. I'm leaving the Spirit behind. The Spirit comes into primary focus. So this is the movement of history, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's just too big a picture. We want to get into the Jacob story today and get into the text. But that's why in these narratives, the father-son thing is so important. Not just fathers, it's fathers and sons. That is a major theme, and that's why at the heart of both of these chiastic structures is the birth of the son. Now, that's all introductory stuff. We'll come back and repeat some of those points Let's look at Genesis chapter 24. And you have it in front of you in this translation. The only thing that I think he missed in this translation is that in Hebrew narrative, the sentences flow along constantly and phrases with the word and between them. And the Hebrew word for and is like our English word for and when we use it in conversation. It's the W sound or the W-A sound, depending on how the story is flowing. And there are differences between those two things. In modern Hebrew, it's a V and a V-A sound. In old Hebrew, it's just an U sound or a W sound. It's just like in English when we say stuff like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. You don't say Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. You say Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, right? And Bill and Bob and Jane and Fred. You just put a n sound in front of it and that is a connective. In Hebrew, you had exactly the same thing, just had a w sound. Bob with Red, Alice with. And it's a little bit easier because in Hebrew, the accent is almost always at the end of the word instead of at the beginning. As we're going to see, we pronounce all these names in English radically different from the way they're pronounced. We say Abraham. They say Abraham. Abraham. If you want to say 
Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you say, Abraham, we get sap, we are cold. There's w, 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 or wa, wa, wa. That's part of the flow, and he leaves that out. I mean, for some reason, he leaves a lot of the ands out that would make this flow a little bit better. That's the only thing, and I don't know why. In his introduction, he doesn't say why. And in order to keep the feel of Hebrew, I would have kept it there. So I'll probably read it that way, a little bit in English. But let's do this. And I'm going to read this out loud, and you can follow along. But this is a great translation because it's going to give us a much better feel for the text and the way it was designed to be heard. So chapter 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, advanced in days, and Yahweh had blessed Abraham in everything. There's that word blessed for the first time. Abraham said to his servant, See, that should be Abraham. And Abraham, and Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household, who ruled over all that was his, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the women of the Canaanites, among whom I am settled. And rather, you are to go to my land and to my kindred, and take a wife for my son, for Yitzchak. And the servant said to him, Perhaps a woman will not be willing to go after me to this land. May I then bring your son back there, back to the land from which you once went out. And Abraham said to him, Watch out that you do not ever bring my son back here. Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my kindred, who spoke to me, who swore to me, saying, I give this land to your seed. He himself will send his messenger angel on before you, so that you take a wife for my son from there. I of Abraham his Lord, and swore to him an oath about this matter. I just stop here for a second. You notice he says, I will send a messenger on before you. When you leave the camp of God and you go out in the wilderness, the angel goes with you. When does that happen again? In the Exodus, right? They leave Egypt, the angel leads them through. And it also happens when Jacob leaves the land. That's why I want to call attention to it here. As Jacob leaves the land, God appears to him with all these angels and says, I'm going to be with you. And when he comes back in the land, God meets him again with angels. So the angels accompany you when you're away from home. And that's a theme, and it's one that shows up here. Also, I guess we need to say something about this, put your hand under my thigh. They didn't wear underwear in the ancient world. So if you put your hand up under another man's thigh, the back of your hand is up against you-know-what. And what this means is, I'm trusting this to you. If you were to put your hand there, you could easily turn your hand around and do some damage. And Abraham is saying, I'm entrusting my life and my powers to you. This is serious business here. I'm taking a big risk, servant. Just as I'm taking a risk by letting you put your hand here if you decide to rebel against me and cause some damage. So I'm taking a big risk in sending you out to do this. And also, he's sending him out to do something in connection with Abraham's seed or son, which of course is intimately related to the place where the hand is put. So it's not like every time you swore an oath, that's where you put your hand. It's not true that every time you swore an oath in the Bible, you put your hand there. No, this is put here because of the extremity of it. Abraham is saying, I'm trusting you with everything here, but we call the crown jewels. I'm trusting you. And I'm trusting you with my son. Also, 
When the servant says, what if the woman won't go? Should I take my son back there? Verse 6, Abraham says to him, watch out. That's the Hebrew equivalent of what we have in the New Testament as meganoida, translated in your Bible as God forbid or may it never be. That's an expression that Paul uses. Shall we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. God forbid. This is the Hebrew equivalent. Abraham says to him, God forbid. May it never be. You never take my son back there. Made that exodus out of that place. We're not going back. Let's read on. Verse 10. The servant took ten camels from his Lord's camels and went. All kinds of good things from his Lord in his hand. So these ten camels loaded up with stuff and also ten camels to transport the wife and her servants back. And he rose and went to Aram Naharayim to Nahor's town. As a pun there, Naharayim means two rivers. Nahor is Abram's brother, who's we've already from chapter 22, verses 20 to 24, we've seen he's got 12 kids already. But in Hebrew, you would hear that. Aram Naharayim, the footnotes down at the bottom of the page tell you this, verse 10. Aram Naharayim, Nahor. Of course, what are the two rivers here? That's actually the double river. This is a dual form. A pair of rivers. Aram of the river pair. What's the pair of rivers? Tigris and Euphrates, sure. That's the pair, the double river. So that's where we're going, back where Abraham came from. Verse 11, he had the camels kneel outside the town at the water well at setting time, at the time when the water drawers go out and said, Yahweh, God of my Lord Abraham, pray let it happen today for me, and deal faithfully with my Lord Abraham. Better translation. Behold, I have stationed myself by the water spring as the women of the town go out to draw water. May it be that the maiden to whom I say, Pray lower your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, Drink, and I will also give water to your camels to drink. Let her be the one that you have decided on for your servant for Yitzchak. By means of her may I know that you have dealt faithfully with my Lord. Now, this is a Herculean task. You have to stop and think about this for a second because we just read through it. Ten thirsty camels have made a trip across the desert here. How many gallons of water does a camel hold? Well, a lot. One or two humps worth. And there's ten of them. And he says, okay, we'll know it's the right girl, not only if she's generous and gives me a drink, but if she volunteers and says, let me go give water to all your camels here. This has to be, you know, female Hercules. Xena, warrior princess. Tough to offer to do this. So this is quite a test here. She has to be generous, and she has to be real generous to men and animals. So this is quite a test. What girl is going to do this? Verse 15. And it was, not yet had he finished speaking, when, behold, Rivkah came out. She had been born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, wife of Nahor, brother of Abraham. Her pitcher on her shoulder. The maiden was exceedingly beautiful to look at. A virgin, or more literally, a young marriageable girl. And then we're told no man had known her. Going down to the spring, she filled her pitcher and came up again. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Pray let me sip a little water from your pitcher. And she said, Drink, my lord. And in haste she let down her pitcher on her arm and gave him to drink. In other words, the pitcher was on her shoulder. He dropped it down to her arm where she held a handle. This would be an amphora-type jar and held it for him. And when she had finished giving him to drink, she said, I will also draw for your camels until they have finished drinking. 
In haste, she emptied her pitcher into the drinking trough. Then she ran to the well again to draw and drew for all his camels. You might think, well, there were some other girls there with her that helped her out. Nothing about it here. It looks like she did it all herself. I mean, this is a superwoman. Probably had to run back 20 or 30 times to fill this up and do this. Carry this heavy thing. Been working out with weights. She'd been working out with pitchers of water. Pulling these things up on her shoulder. The man kept staring at her. Verse 21. <laughs> Silently to find out whether Yahweh had granted success to his journey or not. He's amazed. It was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a gold nose ring, a half coin or becca in weight, and two bracelets for her wrists, ten shekels in weight, and said, Whose daughter are you? Pray tell me. And is there perhaps in your father's house a place for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bedouel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she said to him, Yes, there is straw. Yes, plenty of fodder with us. Yes, a place to spend the night. I dare say that your translation doesn't give you all those yeses. See, this is part of the rhythm. We see, again, this immediate response that the Holy Spirit is producing in her. Yes, there is straw. Yes, plenty of fodder with us. Yes, a place to spend the night. And in homage, the man bowed low before Yahweh and said, Blessed be Yahweh, God of my Lord Abraham, who has not relinquished his loving kindness and his trustworthiness from my Lord. And as for me, Yahweh has led me on a journey to the house of my Lord's brothers. And the maiden ran and told her mother's household according to these words. See, the girls live with their mothers. These people have tents. The woman has her tent. The man has his tent. The girls were associated with the women, the boys with the men. And the maiden ran and told her mother's household according to these words. Verse 20 now. Now Rivkai had a brother whose name was Levon. Levon ran to the man outside to the spring. And it was. As soon as he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and as soon as he heard Rivka, his sister's words, saying, Thus the man spoke to me, and he came out to the man. There he was standing by camels, ten camels, by the spring, and said, Come, you who are blessed by Yahweh, why are you standing outside? I myself have cleared out the house and the place for the camels. Hey, I'm a good guy here. I can see you're rich. Come stay with us. The man came into the house and unbridled the camels. They gave straw and fodder to the camels, and water for washing his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And food was put before him to eat. And he said, I will not speak until I have spoken my words. And he said, Speak. That is, Levine said. And he said, I am Abraham's servant. Stop there for a sec. There's an anticipation here about Laban. Well, as we know from the Jacob story, which we haven't read yet, that Laban is just exactly what's hinted at here. The guy who's interested in money primarily. As soon as he sees that his sister has got, whoo Look at all this gold. Whoa! Ten camels? Only a rich person has one camel. Here are ten of them. Loaded up with bags. Let's get this guy in our house. Let's see what's going on. Want to marry into this bunch? Sounds good to me. Yes, there's a big anticipation here of the character of Levine in the way this is written. So that's something to just kind of notice as we go through. Now the servant is going to make his speech. Now, way is blessed, as that word, Barak, our Lord exceedingly. So he became great. And he's given him sheep and oxen and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Servant is smart here. He's discerned what, he saw what Levine's eyes went to. 
Laban's eyes went to the well, so he says, hey, we're one rich family here. And that's how he talks to him. He doesn't say, Yahweh made a covenant with him and promised him that his people would be ministers on behalf of the entire world. Wouldn't you like your sister to become part of this priestly people and suffer for the kingdom of God? And be? No, that's not what he says. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. He's got sheep and oxen and silver and gold and servants and maize and camels and donkeys. Sarah, my Lord's wife, bore my Lord a son after she had grown old, and he has given him all that is his. Hey, the guy that I'm trying to get married off here owns all this stuff. Nine, my Lord had me swear, saying, You're not to take a wife for my son from the women of the Canaanites in whose land I'm settled. No, to my father's house here to go, to my clan, and take a wife for my son. And I said to my Lord, Perhaps the woman will not go after me. And he said to me, Yahweh, in whose presence I have walked, will send his angel messenger with you. He will grant success to your journey so that you take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. And only then will you be clear from my oath curse. And when you come to my clan, if they don't give her to you, you will be clear from my oath curse. And I came to the well today and said, Yahweh, God of my Lord Abraham, pray, if you wish to grant success to the journey in which I am going, behold, I have stationed myself by the water spring. May it be that the girl who comes out to draw to whom I say, pray, give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, you drink and I will also draw for your camel. Let her be the woman whom Yahweh has decided for my son of my Lord. Nigh even before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rivkah came out, her pitcher on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew. I said to her, pray, give me to drink. In haste she let down her pitcher from herself and said, drink. And I will also give your camels to drink. And I drank. And she also gave the camels to drink. And I asked her, and I said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bedouel, son of Nahor, whom Milcai bore to him. And I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. And in homage I bowed low before Yahweh, and blessed Yahweh, God of my lord Abraham, who led me on the true journey to take the daughter of my lord's brother for his son. Well, stop right there. Notice the servant seems to do this. This story seems to be in a slightly different order. It says, I asked who she was, and then I gave her the jewels. And originally we read he gave her the jewels and he asked who she was. Some people have tried to make a big deal out of this. I'm not sure that we're supposed to read the original narrative in order. But the sermon decided this is the girl before he knew who she was. It didn't matter who she was. She could have been poor as a church mouse. She still would have been the girl because she had done this miraculous act of generosity. Here he says... I wanted to see who her family was before I gave her the jewels. So he reverses the order a little bit to, again, butter up the situation. Now, he's told this whole story and told him this whole miracle thing. Look, I asked, you know, this impossible task. The girl that would be the right girl would not only give me a drink, but she would also volunteer to give water to all these camels. Stay here an extra hour and wear herself out watering these camels. And sure enough, that's what happened. So obviously God arranged this. Now, are you going to side with God or not? This is the way he's built it up. Plus, we got all this money. We're rich. So, verse 49. So now, if you wish to deal faithfully and truly with my Lord, your cousin Abraham, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I may know to turn right or left. You know, there are other people out here who love to be married into a rich household like ours. You're not interested. Levon and Bedouel answered and said, The matter has come from Yahweh. We cannot speak to you evil or good. That's the theme of the knowledge of good and evil. God has and gives to us when he's ready, but if God says something, you don't question it. So they say, 
Looks good to us. If this is what God wants. What can we say? Here is Rufkah before you. Take her and go, that she may be a wife for the son of your Lord, as Yahweh has spoken. And it was when Abraham's servants heard their words that he bowed to the ground before Yahweh. The servant brought out objects of silver and objects of gold and garments and gave them to Rivkah. This is her endowment. This will be hers permanently. It's her insurance money. She's not going to be a concubine or a second-class wife who doesn't have any money of her own. And he gave presents to her brother and to her mother. The father isn't mentioned here. The brother is the one who negotiates the situation. They ate and drank. I'm sure that's in the ate and drank. He and the men were with him and spent the night. So see, it turns out that the servant of Abraham wasn't alone. He had some men with him, helping him bring those ten donkeys across the desert. And he arose at daybreak. He said, send me off to my Lord. Boy, this is real blunt. See, none of this please and no, no couching it. And he probably said other things, but the way it's recorded, it's, he's instantly ready to go. But her brother and her mother said, let the maiden stay with us a few days, perhaps ten, and after that she may go. The Hebrew is a little bit tricky here. We don't know whether they were actually asking for ten months or less. But they wanted her to stay a while. Why do you think? Mother probably wants her to stay around so she can cry and say goodbye. I think Laban wants her to stay around. Maybe some more goodies will come out of these packages as he stays. And that's what Laban does later on, remember? Jacob wants to leave. Laban says, oh, stay, stay, stay. Because I see that there's money where you are. All this is anticipating what's going to happen. Verse 56. And he said to them, Don't delay me, for Yahweh has granted success to my journey. Send me off, that I may go back to my Lord. And they said, Let's call the maiden and ask for her own mouth. They figure she might want to stay and not leave right away. They called Rifkah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, Elech. That's about as short as you can get in Hebrew. I will go. Elech. She said, Let's go. I'm ready. Now let me ask you something here. Just before we go any further, and then we'll read the rest of the chapter and come back to it. Have we already read a story in Genesis about somebody in a foreign land that God came to and said, I want you to pack up and leave and go somewhere else? And he did it. Uh huh. So what is Rebecca being presented here? She's being presented as a female Abraham. Now when you hear the commentators and other people say Rebecca was a wicked, evil woman who didn't care about anything, they have totally misread this text. All this emphasis on how immediately willing she is to pack up and go, this is surprising. Most girls would want to stay back a few days to say goodbye to everybody. No, she's ready to go. This is very much a recapitulation of the Abraham narrative here with a matriarch. Women are important. Make it this male chauvinist interpretation of the Bible that says Eve seduced Adam to sin. Rebecca was a rotten person. Don't buy it. There are plenty of rotten women in the Bible, but Rebecca is not one of them. Verse 59, they sent off Rivkah, their sister. This sister business is important. It says not their daughter, their sister. Well, I'll explain that next week. Notice it. They sent off Rivkah, their sister, with her nurse, and Abraham's servant with his men. And they gave Rivkah a farewell blessing and said, Our sister, may you become a thousandfold myriads. Myriads is Rabbah. Rabbah, Rivkah, is a pun. May you, Rivkah, become Rabbah. Myriads. From Rava, multiply. May you multiply into myriads. Rivka, may you Rava into Rava. 
May you multiply into myriads. May your seed inherit the gate of those who hate him. Rivkah and her maids arose, they mounted the camel and went after the man. The servant took Rivkah and went away. Now Yitzchak had come from the approach of, that's a better translation, Rivkah had come from where you come to, the well of the living one who sees me. Well of Bear Lahai Roy, in 1614. For he had settled in the Negev. And Yitzchak went out to stroll in the field around the turning of sunset. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rivka lifted up her eyes and saw Yitzchak. She got down from the camel and said to the servant, Who is the man over there walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, That is my Lord. And she took a veil and covered herself. Now the servant recounted to Yitzchak all the things that he had done. Yitzchak brought her into the tent of Sarai, his mother. He took Rivka and she became his wife and he loved her. Thus was Yitzchak comforted after his mother. We're going to come back to this next week because we're way out of time. I wanted to start here. This is actually the material we just read is not part of the Jacob narrative in Genesis. It's part of the end of the Abraham narrative, but it introduces all the major characters, or most of them. And there's a lot of anticipation there, so we needed to read it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.